This is the Territory Story Podcast with Peter Gowers. Thanks to Opie Dennis Digital Marketing, your local digital marketing agency. Hello there and welcome. This is the Territory Story Podcast Weekend Edition or Weekends with Walshie. My name is Peter Gowers. I hope you're having a good week. Lots to talk about in this episode. So let's get the man on himself, Chris Walsh from the NT Independent Online Newspaper. Walshie, g'day. Yeah, hey, Pete, good to see you. You too, my friend, you too. Um, well, what a week, hey? Yeah. <laughs> yep, just another busy week in the territory. Um, backflips, corruption, uh, incompetence. Um, we, we got it all again here. Just a bit of same old, same old. Yeah, it seems like it, but uh, new angles on things and uh, – um, yeah, and so here we are experiencing it every week. But, uh, yeah, I mean, there's some interesting things this week for sure, Pete. Well, as um, some of you will realize, we've released a little segment once a week now called the uh, Weekend Edition News Bites, where we give you a little 10 to 15-minute snippet of what's coming up. So let's get straight into it because, of course, the, the biggest story in the snippet we talked about yesterday is uh, in the – unredacted coronial report, which you've managed to get your hands on, that talks about um, police pursuing Zach Rolfe and a murder charge against the advice of a DPP witness, which is big. Yeah, P, yeah, look, we, we, as I was saying, you know, we always thought that we'd finally get to see this at some point. Surely to God, we were going to see an unredacted version of what's known as, you know, the Pollock slash Proctor report. It's hard to say who's who. Remember, highly regarded superintendent Proctor had, uh, Scott Proctor had, uh, oh, Scott Pollock, sorry. <laughs> we get them kind of mixed up. They even did at the inquest. But, uh, yeah, highly respected superintendent Scott Pollock was brought in to, uh, to run the coronial investigation for police, which was running, you know, at the same time as the criminal investigation. And he gets moved out of there because they don't like some of the findings. And uh, the police executive move him on. They bring in David Proctor, Commander David Proctor. He continues it. Uh, and, again, it seems that they don't like maybe some of the findings here. Now, we were lucky now this you know, we, we, we had a, a copy of the redacted report, one of the draft documents uh, uh, that we were able to obtain back in September, which really shed some light on everything. And, of course, you know, we upset some people with that story, with that series of stories. I think there were six overall in a special investigation series uh, that David Wood and I did. And uh, um, what we saw there, though, I mean, was just explosive things that nobody had heard before that was contained in this report. And I'll just remind you that that report, the existence of that only uh, came to be in June or came to be known in June 2021. And this is a, a month before the murder trial was set to start. It was originally set, slated for August 2021. It ends up uh, going into February 22. Uh, but nobody knows about this report. Now, discovery happens where they have to hand over all the evidence and this gets buried. This this contentious Pollock report at the time that we knew it as, uh, yeah. Chalker buries this. And then he gets, and I don't know if I'm still knew this, and then he gets, uh, so, so the defense team finds out about it, and they said, well, we want this. And they start filing subpoenas and saying, look, there's evidence in here now that we've been told about that uh, flies in the face of expert evidence that's going to be given at the murder trial, and we need to have this report. And furthermore, you know, Pollock and Proctor should be on the stand at the murder trial. <laughs> now, they don't end up taking the stand, but they do get the report, but it's a redacted report, the defense team. And uh, 
Uh, Chalker gets it redacted. He claims legal professional privilege. But what they also tried to do that day, Pete, in June 2021, was uh, put in a suppression order with the judge so that we couldn't report on the fact that Chalker tried to bury this. Like they actually said, you're going to taint a jury. You can't report. We shouldn't. They shouldn't be allowed to report on the fact that Chalker tried to bury this. And the judge said, yeah, no, that's not going to taint the jury. That's fine. And so we could report. And then it just looks so desperate and so just like, you know, that something, to quote his lawyer, she said, no, nothing nefarious has gone on here. Well, it sure as hell looks like it's something nefarious when you're trying to get the court to suppress the fact that you buried it and hid it mm. from disclosure. So... You know, so this report became this kind of really huge, uh, important piece in this whole, in the whole Rolf investigation, the shooting death of Kumanjai Walker, of course, him being charged with murder. So we get the report and we see some things, but they're redacted. So now this week we, we obtain an unredacted copy of the report. And, uh, you know, I'm going to get into it here, what's in here, and then I'll just kind of sum it up after because I want to make it very clear and it's hard and I know the story's a little long. Um, but we've got to, you know, I had to go back and then the reason it takes a while, I had to go back and I had to listen to the inquest. I had to see what people said because you had serious people involved in this report, uh, including senior investigators who ran that murder, uh, criminal investigation who weren't asked about this at all. The redacted stuff at the inquest, which is really troubling because, well, here, and I'll get into what's in it. So what we know now is that, uh, that, it has shown that detectives building the murder case against Rolf ignored legal advice from the Office of the Director of Public Prosecutions in their pursuit to lay a murder charge. We're saying that these excerpts from the Proctor Report now called uh, were previously redacted. They've raised serious questions about the integrity of the anti-police's investigation. And we know that because, you know, you're disobeying legal advice. Like, th th that's unheard of. Um, yeah. And we'll, we'll get back to that. The Office of the DPP itself. Uh, how is it that they make recommendations the police investigators don't follow them and yet they still go to trial? Uh, that's really troubling. The coroner, mm -hmm. and then also coroner Elizabeth Armitage's ongoing inquest into the death of Kumanjai Walker, which I'm saying going back and listening to that, this hasn't been explored at all, the, the stuff that was in the redacted report. Now, uh, as I say, it, it's contrary how they operated was con quote, contrary to the advice provided them by the DPP, the police investigating, and the critical decisions about the investigation were made by senior officers outside of official joint management committee meetings and not recorded in accordance with proper procedures. So they're making decisions just not in how, how they were supposed to do it. Uh, and yeah. one of those critical decisions was actually, we see the unredacted report shows that Chalker's office directly influenced that critical decision to use a compromised use of force expert against legal advice. Uh, and we say adding further evidence of Chalker's involvement, despite his repeated claims he was not involved in the murder investigation. And we go back to earlier last year when we were um, mm -hmm. going through those contemporaneous notes by the detectives that showed that uh, Chalker was involved, despite him coming out and then repeatedly saying he had not, nothing to do with the criminal investigation. Um, yeah, we, we, we now know, and this is it's showing that his office is involved in this. So, uh, yeah. Um, yeah, so legal arguments, as we said, ensued last September over why the other legal parties have set the inquest. When we started reporting on the on the redacted report, the, the other parties were saying, well, you know, coroner, you've you've seen the unredacted. We want this. Uh, Chalker, through his lawyer, Ian Freckleton, then says he's going to waive 
a legal professional privilege. This is some question on whether or not he could even claim that. It was advice from the DPP. Um, anyway, he waves it so Armitage says, yes, I'll pass it out to everybody. Um, and she gave it to the parties, we understand. Now, we're just saying here very clearly the anti-independence documents did not come from a party to the proceedings. Uh, we got it from somewhere else, so we're not saying that anybody's breached anything in, in terms of confidentiality there. Under the section of the report, though, well, most of what was reported or redacted in that uh, in the Pollock draft was under the section called investigative bias. Uh, now, yeah, we see that they've they've redacted an entire email from acting superintendent, your man Kirk Panuto. Panuto was involved here. <laughs> he, uh, I love he, Panuto. So what had happened? So they've got this out, but he wrote an email to quote the overall investigator in charge of Operation Charwell, and Charwell, of course, was the the criminal um, yep. task force against role, understood to be then Assistant Commissioner Nick Antisich, in which Panuto provides the advice he received from then De- Deputy Director of Public Prosecutions, Matthew Nathan. So the, uh, yeah, the now unredacted email was written as police were frantically attempting to secure use of force expert witnesses to build their murder case. And it shows that Nathan, uh, the DPP at the time deputy, held grave concerns about using uh, Senior Sergeant Andrew Barham, because, quote, his experiences in the area of fatal police shootings cannot compare with those of his contemporaries. So, I mean, that, that that's really what it sums up to. I mean, you can, you know, we had other issues mm-hmm. with him. There were conflicts of interest. He was too close to the investigation. He may have attended a meeting in Uendamu, um, which would have not made him good to be this use of force expert. But the DPP is saying his experiences in the area of fatal police shootings cannot compare with those of his contemporaries. So the saying he's just not up to the job here. You got to find somebody else. Mm-hmm. So what uh, they, they said is you do, you need to bring in an independent use of force expert. We can't use this guy who's not qualified. He's too close to the investigation. There are conflicts of interest everywhere. Um, so they said uh, they ignored that essentially. Uh, they did not approach anyone interstate for independent expertise, despite being given names. And then they appear to have relied on, on Chalker's office to find a suitable expert. So DPP mm-hmm. says, don't use them. They go to Chalker's office and say, you find us somebody else, boss, to use uh, in yeah. Australia, because that's what the DPP, who's running the prosecution, who will run the criminal trial, they want an independent expert from somewhere else. So Chalker's, we find here in this, these redacted things, Chalker's chief of staff goes to the investigators and he says, well, you're not going to find anybody else. We tried New South Wales. They said, no, um, you're not going to find anybody else because, he says, because the uh, the uh, uh, Police Federation of Australia had uh, essentially compromised their ability to find anyone because they put out a statement shortly after Rolf was charged saying that they support Rolf. Right. And so, but so this is, but this is yeah. what they claim. This is what Chalker's office is telling investigators. Well, yeah. you're not going to be able to find anybody because they're all tainted because the federal union, the national union has come out and said that. Now, we don't know if that's true. What we know is that they didn't even try anybody else. We know mm-hmm. that, um, uh, that it shows here, despite a number of highly regarded police use of force experts from within Australia being nominated to Panuto no attempt was made to engage them. And they say, due to public comments made by the Police Federation of Australia, um, you know, they, 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 they discount that later by saying, clearly, 
you know, that the claim was unfounded that Chalker's office saying that the Police Federation of Australia had influenced the opinion on use of force experts clear across the country, finding they found in the report the claim was unfounded. They say clearly Detective Senior Sergeant Barham was not averse to provide his impartial, quote unquote, expert opinion, despite being a member of both the NT Police Association and the Police Federation of Australia. Yeah. So why didn't they check with anyone else, right? So Maybe the, other, the NT Police could have taken the same sort of attitude towards their own staff member. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, that's it. So, <laughs> yeah, yeah. So why wouldn't you be able to get somebody from another... Uh, yeah. jurisdiction somewhere to do this who's separate and independent. This guy isn't independent. This guy, uh, Barham, you know, he was teaching at the college there and they found previously that we reported that what That's he was teaching. Academy? Yes, the police academy <laughs> one through six here. Um, and what they found that he, in another report here, in an earlier report, that what he was teaching the cadets to the recruits was out, out of date. It was outdated um, use of force stuff. Like he was not a credible witness. And in fact, so when they use him in the trial, uh, he just gets obliterated on the stand. Now he says that um, that uh, that Rolf should have engaged in hand-to-hand combat after he'd been stabbed. And while, while Walker's wrestling with his partner, he's torn apart on the stand. And Ben McDivitt, now this is a guy, former AFP assistant commissioner with nearly 40 years of police service, who had formulated the de-escalation model of training the anti-police used. He told the court and then at the trial that Barham's testimony was ludicrous and goes against the very training that apparently Barham has given to so many officers. <laughs> right? Yeah, so, like, I don't know how, how more, yeah, and he's laughed out of court, and clearly the jury doesn't buy his stuff, right? But the question is, why is he being used? I mean, he is so discredited in this. Why was he used to, to, to do this as the investigation was ongoing, despite advice from... Uh, the DPP you had advice mm-hmm. from other senior officers. Remember, Bacon said in an email, he's got too many conflicts of interest. We want to limit those in a murder trial, guys. Like, you remember the headline was something yeah. like that? The less, yeah, yeah. the less conflicts, the better in a murder trial. Um, yeah. So the question is, you know, why is he being used for that purpose? And he's discredited at the trial. But it's clear that Chalker's office had told them, don't look for anybody else. You're not going to get anybody else. you got to use mm-hmm. Barham. Now, uh, you know, the, the question that this raises now, too, and, and something that I've gone back and I've read at the inquest that's still going on, well, that will start again at the end of the month, we're told, is that he has been presented at the inquest as a use of force expert. So counsel assistant Peggy Dwyer has attempted to uh, establish his bona fides, I guess, as a, you know, by saying, okay, well, you're rejecting all the other claims that they've made here. I mean, the simple fact is that this man was using out-of-date training. He was laughed at by a real expert who said that his comments at the, at the trial were ludicrous. None of this, and went against the training, none of this was brought up, has been brought up at the inquest. Barron was allowed to give the same testimony, and nobody questioned it. Really? Yes, this is what I, I'm so God. frustrated about in this whole process here and why I made the decision to run this thing, because this needs to change now. Like, we can't just pretend that this guy's an expert when he's been roundly discredited by everybody. And then we're treating him at the inquest, so the coroner is going to go back and file her report with this guy as the expert, but they have nobody else. Now, let me tell you about this, this other whole little aspect of the unredacted thing that we got. Now, the other part of this is that an international expert, they started floating that idea. Well, if we can't get anyone from Australia, let's get an international expert. Well, and then Deputy DPP shoots that down as well. And he says, do not do that. 
It would be very, <laughs> the quote is, it would be very informative in the coronial setting. Uh, but in the criminal court, this is a large risk to the prosecution. Um, and that includes for reasons uh, that an international expert would not understand local context, would have relevancy issues, and would be, quote, portrayed as an ivory tower academic. Uh, mm-hmm. Nevertheless, the senior police That's in officer, addition to all the other risks that you've already taken. Yeah. And so that day that they are told about this advice from the DPP, they have a secret meeting to hire Alpert. Let's do it. <laughs> yeah, to hire this U.S.-based <laughs> professor, Jeffrey Alpert. Now, we know the previously blacked out notes in the Proctor Report show an email from Panudo in which he had shared the DPP's view with Commander Martin Dole, but the Col- Dole and Antisich, along with Proctor, had been had met and determined not to formally approach another Australian jurisdiction to provide a use of force expert. Um, yeah, and they went with this guy. Now, we know. Now, here's the thing. So when they make this critical decision, they're calling it to use Alpert, and this guy cost us like $100,000, taxpayers $100,000. Um, what it says is instead, um, this critical decision was made to engage the overseas expert contrary to the advice of DPP. Um, uh, they then redacted this line that said that it was not recorded properly on the promise system because it wasn't in this joint management committee meeting. It was a secret meeting they had and wasn't recorded properly, this critical decision, and it's blacked out. And that's supposed to be under legal professional privilege. But we know that that isn't. That's administrative stuff. They should have recorded this meeting and why they made this decision, but they didn't do that. So, you know, they, they move ahead now with um, with Barham and Alpert. Uh and we know, we already know $100,000 for Alpert. We've reported this previously that it was seen that uh, the senior detectives were, quote unquote, editing his report. And he was writing them saying, oh, is this what you want? Or, you know, tell me what to change and I'll change it. I mean, he was discredited. He couldn't go on the trial. Uh, but he was used. Now, both of them, Barham and Alpert, uh, played critical roles for the prosecution in securing Rolf's committal to stand trial for murder. Um, right. So the report found that, uh, they were not given all of the facts before finalizing their respective reports. It's difficult to accept that either Barham or Alpert claim their neutrality as an expert. The report stated Barham was firmly ensconced within the investigation team and Albert was contracted to provide evidence by the anti-police executives who form part of Operation Charwell investigation and who approved his selection contrary to the advice of the DPP. Not surprisingly, both Barham and Alpert provided identical opinions given access to the same restricted information. And that was the shots two and three were not reasonable, necessary, proportionate, and appropriate in the circumstances. They used the same words, right? Um, Now, what happens is that Alpert... Coincidentally. Yeah, so Alpert, yeah, just a coincidence. So Alpert, uh, he's not used at the uh, at the Supreme Court murder trial, as we know, but he was used at the committal, right? And so now I go back to that comment that Matt Nathan made to the investigators. He said, well, you're an international expert. It's not going to be good for a criminal trial, but it would be good for coronial. So I asked counsel assisting Peggy Dwyer, um, are you going to use Alpert? We don't see him on the witness list here. Yeah. Like the DPP said, he'd be good for this. Oh, wait, are you acknowledging that this guy's report was roundly discredited by everybody? <laughs> I mean, why is there no mention of that? Why is there no mention yeah. that they, they they beefed up the thing? 
a report to to convict a man here of murder. I mean, it's just outrageous. All of this, and like I said, like I said to you yesterday, look, I know I get that a lot of people don't like Zach Rolf, and I get that um, you know, and regardless of what you think of him, though. This goes to just the fundamental aspects of Correct. the judicial system and democracy. nothing to do with what you think about him as a black. And what this shows, I mean, obviously, and I'm, I'm just going to kind of sum it up here, is that the police didn't have evidence. They didn't have enough evidence for the murder trial. Mm. They jumped to this idea and they get the DPP to agree to the murder charge, to charging him with murder on a prima facie level. They'd seen the video and they thought, yeah, okay, fine. But then they had to go and collect evidence. Now, what we see in these reports is that that evidence collection did not happen properly or in accordance with normal police protocol. But furthermore, the evidence that they had was clearly not enough. They were afraid to use uh, an independent interstate use of force expert. They relied solely on this guy who was discredited and didn't have the qualifications to begin with. But, you know, it gets to the point where you're, you're, you know, and the allegation has been made, we're going to have these stories and, and parliamentarians have said this, that this starts to look like perverting the course of justice. Because if there's not enough evidence to, 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 to stand a man on trial, but you start creating that evidence, you start using experts that are not experts to, to formulate this or to go along with the narrative that you're creating to get that murder charge up. I mean, my God, that that's scary stuff. That that could happen to any one of us. The police just say, "Oh well, we'll bring in this guy. He's not an expert. He's our buddy," um, and and let him write up a report that will be used at committal and get you to, committed to stand trial. It's just uh, overwhelming here to me that we we've seen this and that nothing's happened. And 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 more concerning to me too is that like I don't even know what we do with this at this point. Like we're trying to get more attention to this, and we'll have more. Uh, stories up about it and followed from it with politicians and um, with legal bodies who are aware of this kind of stuff. But what we're looking at here is, you know, in the inquest, too, we, we expect the inquest to be looking at this. I mean, the the, um, the investigation was supposed to be looked at as part of the inquest, but they've yeah. clearly turned a blind eye to this. And this isn't, I mean, you've got the police commissioner here, like manipulating evidence, essentially. And and nobody's doing anything about it. It's just just unbelievable to me, unbelievable. But it's the NT. I mean, but uh, anyway, we need we needed some outside bodies to have yeah. a look at this, and we'll be we'll be taking it there. It's just, I mean, I'm no legal expert, but I don't understand how if Zach Rolfe was acquitted of murder based on the discredited evidence of these so-called experts. I don't understand why these same people are giving evidence at the coronial inquiry. Well, that, that's that's beggar's belief. That's it. And they, they won't reference Jeffrey Alpert because he wasn't even used in the trial, but he was yeah. used in the committal. And then you've got Barham, who's been widely discredited by everybody. And, and they tried to, they said to him on the stand, um, I think it was Proctor. And they said, oh, well, but you know, he didn't go to that meeting in Uendomo. And he said, okay, well, maybe he didn't doesn't really change anything here. And then they said, yeah. well, you know, that the training, the outdated training, it was just his training, but with a different name. They just changed the name, but it was the same training. And he's like, okay, I guess if you're saying so. He said, like, I haven't been on this case in over a year. Yeah. But but that doesn't get to the fundamentals. Of the, the man had a serious conflict of interest. You've got yeah. pressure being put on him to do this report. Um, you've now got the, the commissioner's office telling the lead investigators, you don't use anyone else. You're not going to get anyone else. And then they don't even try contacting an independent person. 
in mm-hmm. in Australia who'd be good. Uh, just stinks. It just adds up, and and uh, you know, and I'm, yeah. I'm getting doubts about this inquest. And I and I don't know. It seems to me that they had a narrative. Peggy Dwyer has a narrative that she wants to pursue, and she's left this out. And you remember we've talked about this, like some other stuff that's come up that only I've reported on at the inquest because it takes time and you got to go through it. Uh, anyway, yeah, we're going to keep watching it, but this is really a, a really bad. A bad uh, just situation for the NT's democracy and justice system that mm. this was allowed to happen, that we now have evidence that this happened, and yet nobody's taken any action on it. We're going to have more on it. Yeah, it, it, um, it has that sense to it, doesn't it, of just why, was, why were things allowed to unfold as they did, and now why is the coronial inquiry being done seemingly in line with that narrative, yeah. which has been discredited. That's it. And all I'm asking is to be fair, right? I'm not, I'm not like the, the, the text messages that have come out. Now, that's another thing. The text messages have come out. We know about them. Yeah. They're horrible. Yeah. They're just horrible. Now, why isn't this stuff coming out, though? Like all these reports that have already mm. apparently been canvassed to the extent that they would be canvassed with the witnesses who've appeared already. Why yeah. hasn't she made these public? Like, I have to get this stuff leaked to me by people. Um, yeah. Because she, and there's no reason she could have made this public, but is she afraid that this goes against the narrative that they're building here? And and all yeah. I want is like a full picture of everything. And, you know, that's what we heard Peggy Dwyer say at the start of this thing. You know, there are no good guys, there are no bad guys. We want a full picture. Well, we all want a full picture here. It's clear who they think is yes. the bad guy here and who the good the guys are. correct picture. Yeah, but that's it. We got to see everything because we know about the failings that happened in Uendamu that night and that the proper protocol wasn't followed and that yeah. Zach Rolf had no business being in that in that house with Walker. Mm. Um, and, and, and that is so big and that's a big part. But then you had all this other stuff that had happened as well and how they got to that point. And you got the, the, the uh, police officer in charge of Uendamu deceiving the community and putting ambulance drivers' lives at risk and they got hit in the head with rocks because she was trying to deceive mm. the community. I mean, it's just the whole thing is just so crazy that it happened. But we've got to look yeah. at everything here. We can't just say, well, there is a bad guy here and we got to nail him on this because, no, this is the bad guy here. It starts to look like our police overall, the executive, and yeah. and our justice system. That's what's, that's who the villain is starting to look like in this case because we're ignoring this. They're mm, ignoring and I don't, and I don't want to make light of a situation, but the more you are talking, you're talking about expert witnesses, and of course, then Police Academy comes into my head, <laughs> and I'm just picturing this guy on the stand like doing vocal impersonations because <laughs> that's all he's got left. <laughs> uh, that would be some comic relief in here that maybe we need at times <laughs> in this inquest. Yeah. Yes, and look, just lastly, you did mention that um, you know the the. Uh, the unredacted report was leaked to you, not from anybody involved that was handed it officially. I'm just picturing the same person with the telephoto lens that got the Kate Warden stuff last week. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Had that Peggy Dwyer was reading it at the Alice Springs airport. Did a lot reading on the way home. <laughs> that would be good. I can't evolve yeah. that, but <laughs> that no, no. Would be good. We, we wouldn't ask. I tried that one finish up there. All right, look, let's move on to uh, the next story and, and uh, another organisation that uh, has been discussed a lot over the last couple of years. 
And this refers to the ICAC and their review of the Troubled Bachelor Institute with the, the report not intended to punish or embarrass and uh, leaving out allegations of misconduct. <laughs> Isn't that what we expect from this, this ICAC? Well, uh, don't punish just, anyone for misconduct or corruption. Don't hurt their feelings. We don't want their feelings hurt either. Um, if you could just look the other way on some things, we'd like that. Maybe, maybe, maybe give some recommendations on how they can improve policy and procedure because that's what we're all yeah. interested in here. Because we all know that the corruption doesn't really happen. It's just that policies and procedures aren't followed, according to Michael Riches. Yeah, and perhaps just the HR procedures, given that the, yeah, same they're hiring. <laughs> the same roles are getting refilled like every six months. Yeah. Well, look, yeah, I mean, you're referencing that, right? It's, um, who are they looking for? Their ninth chief executive officer since August 2017, after the sudden and unexplained departure of Leon Yeatman less than five months into the job. That was just back in December, I guess. And of course, that the uh, Institute had lost 11.1 million from 2016 to 2020, and that they've stopped publishing annual reports. But, uh, you know, it's really just we don't want to embarrass them or anything. Uh, so what the ICAC's done here now, he's, he's made recommendations that the Bachelor Institute's trained staff about their ethical responsibilities, <laughs> reporting requirements, whistleblower protections, and management of improper conduct as part of his review of the Troubled Indigenous Training Organization, which also references missing artwork and passing, but no specific mention of misconduct. Okay. So it actually says that art went missing, but, uh, you know, it's more important not to punish or embarrass the Institute here. My uh, act of God rather than <laughs> yeah, look, he didn't raise any specific uh, issues of wrongdoing or improper conduct that he may have found while undertaking this review, which ran uh, for up to a year, we understand, and which he concluded with the help of Bentley's advisory consultants, they're called. Uh, yeah, so this, you know, this, the, the problems, of course, we've been talking about this for a long time, what he's been all over this. Uh, so we know that it's gone on, um, for years, for many years. Uh, it got to a point though where a whistleblower, and I'm trying to find that in 2019, that's it, uh, had written a report for the chief minister's office. Uh, this whistleblower had knowledge of the internal workings at the Troubled Institute, stated that. Former Bachelor Chief Executive uh, Larkin had employed his relative as a vocational educator. They talked about these kind of things. He had employed his partner as a senior project manager. Now, none of that has been proven to be inappropriate. He did not respond to questions at the time. But, you know, there are issues that were raised along this thing and, and for a long time. Uh, and Riches, too, we understand that the previous ICAC had gone and looked at things, but that report never got public. So Riches decides that he's going to do, he said, a review. Um, now, this review uh, was only of policies, practices, and procedures, and was not an investigation into individual conduct, uh, or if there was improper conduct found or suspected improper conduct found, uh, he said that that would be considered separately. So, you know, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know what this is, really. I don't know why he's getting in there, I guess he's showing them again, like he's all about this education thing, right? That's what he thinks the NT, that, that the public servants don't know that they're breaking the law and committing crimes and, and engaging in corruption. I'm not saying here, but in all over, he always seems to think that 
oh, well, we've just got to let them know what the rules are. And then it's like, no, we're past that point. Like they know what they're doing and they know what they're doing is wrong. So start doing something about it. So, you know, he didn't mention any referrals to any other authorities concerning operations of the incident or actions of anyone who works or worked there or any members of the Institute's council or former members of the council in this review. But it went on uh, to outline, I guess, and, and provide some recommendations, uh, you know, and then he gets into these, uh, like what he said, these kind of motherhood statements um about how and i talked about this i mean this is just him he is just the consummate public servant this guy like he he i'm, I'm telling you i just you read this stuff and you start thinking like this guy's never going to be able to to break a big corruption case wide open this is just not in his blood you know like it's not he doesn't he doesn't thrive like that and i you know and i'm just saying like there's a place for a guy like him in the public service and an auditor general role or something but this guy um yeah, I don't, I don't see his ability to be able to, to, you know, he just even the way he responds to media and stuff and his attitude. I, anyway, look, this, but this is an example of how he does this. So he says, uh, he says, uh, public bodies have an obligation to manage effectively the public resources for which they are responsible. Robust controls for the management of public finances is critical not only to ensure the efficient use of money to advance the objectives of the body, but to minimize the risk of impropriety associated with those resources. Okay. Yeah, yeah. that's that Michael sounds, Richards. Sounds like it might be of the um, 101 textbook that the executive <laughs> management gets. Well, you know, this guy puts it in the review here, and this is what we're getting. He's not getting into any specifics of anything that's actually happened here. Well, we know you know, by looking at everything, that there's serious problems here at this place. But he couches it all around this, uh, these recommendations and these motherhood statements. Like, like well, I, but that is him. That is Michael Richards. That is the man. I, yeah. Uh, anyway, we'll see where we're at here. Um, yeah, look, another one. Poor leadership, disenfranchisement of staff, and dissatisfaction with the work environment create an organization more vulnerable to improper conduct. Okay. Right. That's great. Like, I don't know why we have an ICAC if this is the kind of garbage <laughs> he's putting out here, right? Like, people are disillusioned. People are upset. We've talked about this last week. He's hiring a party planner. He's uh, staging a, a conference here. We, we've now gone, at that point, last week it was 574 days, so 581 days now. Um, without him, you know, him being in the role nearly 20 months and not putting out a public report into corruption, this sure as hell isn't it. This is a very tame review that like another body could have done, or maybe these um, consultants that he hired could have done on their own. This isn't mm. what, what, what an independent commissioner against corruption should be doing. Anyway, you know, it, it go on and read the story about all of his, uh, his um, recommendations, but it's into policies, financial controls. It's broken down into policies, financial controls, and risk management, conflicts of interest, recruitment. Uh, training, corporate culture, other matters. So, um, yeah, if you want to, that's like a textbook. If you want to learn, <laughs> you could learn somewhere else and go read that. There's another ticker for your website, Chris. Mm -hmm. 581 days since there was a, <laughs> since he's been in. He's got it? there 40 billion by 3030. You can do it. How many days since a major report's been released? <laughs> well, you know, and he, and he just gets angry. But see, that's the other thing I don't get is why does the man get so angry when I send him questions and he writes back and he's really 
petulant about it all. Like, child, I'm not responding to you. You've already got your story written. You were mean to me in those questions. Like, and I, nobody's done that before. Peter. I got to tell you, like, nobody's done that. I've never, and we're paying him to be the bigger man. As we said, mm-hmm. we're paying him like $350,000 a year, 400 a year. He can take tough questions from the media and answer them. Perhaps he doesn't appreciate your sarcasm, Chris. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, that might be it. Or he doesn't like the black balloons that we're putting up on my uh, images. I don't even know what that's about, but it's there. And I would suggest that if anyone wants to protest the ICAC, that they go tie a black balloon down on his office there and get the message across. So we want a goddamn yeah. report, a real report, not a that's review. The official protest of Territorians is black balloons, is it? <laughs> yeah. cool. Well, yeah, look, I just, we need them to do something, and this isn't it. And he, I know, like, look, I, and I've talked to people, and I get that investigations take time. I get this. Um, we want to give him time, but he's not giving us anything in between to, to reassure mm-hmm. us, to, to build that faith that we should have in his office after all the troubles and all the problems that, that, that have come out. So anyway, you're looking for some burly in between reports, eh? Just something to keep you interested <laughs> in what that can. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, but you know, like when these things start to take that long, people lose faith and they lose confidence in the institution, right? Like, you know, you're going over two years for things, and that starts to get to a place you know you don't want to be there. But mm. anyway, anyway, we'll see what happens. Well, perhaps the next story will bring you some hope, Chris, because uh, the MT's Attorney General has been referred to the ICAC over alleged misconduct and potential corruption by the one and only independent Robin Lamley. Yeah, the one woman opposition there, Robin <laughs> Lamley. Uh, the opposition did show up today, of all days, but uh, Robin Lamley got there first. Um, and what she said here, what she's done is she's referred, yeah, the uh, Attorney General, the first law officer, as we like to say, the Northern Territory, uh, Attorney General Chancey Pick, <laughs> um, <clears throat> been referred to the ICAC now for allegedly failing to publicly disclose what she's saying is his deep connections to an Aboriginal service provider in Alice Springs. Um, that she said, and we know, well, she said enormous amounts of public money. We've gone in and looked at some of those. Uh, this is Tangentier. Um, uh, Council mm-hmm. Aboriginal Corporation is their full name. Now, there's other subsidiaries of them, and we've we've gone in and pulled up the tenders awarded as we do a lot. Um, millions. Look, we're we're looking at millions here now uh, to them and their subsidiaries. Now, Robin Lamley said that uh, he had not declared a conflict of interest, Jancy Peck, with the corporation, the council, um, uh, and that she was you know, obligated then as she has before to refer to uh, the ICAC, which is mandatory reporting requirements. She actually does have to do that. Now, she was saying that um, that she personally doesn't have any issue with Tangentier and and the services that they provide to town camps around Alice Springs. Yeah. But she said, you know, people in the community were talking about these clear conflicts of interest. There are alleged conflicts of interest that, that Chancey Pake has with uh, senior uh, people at this at this corporation now that he refers to his family uh, and so she felt obligated to do that now he was also remote housing minister between March and May of last year and she's saying that some contracts sure. came out there now a lot of these two uh, a lot of big ones were select tenders 
So they didn't go through the public process yeah. that allowed other people to bid on these contracts. Um, one of them was for $6.4 million that we saw in June last year. So that's like right after he gets out. I think he ended in May when Gunner resigned. But in June, then the company's awarded $6.4 million select contract to demolish seven old houses at Alice Springs Mount Nancy Town Camp and build nine new homes, part of a $40 million investment to overall housing in 11 town camps around Alice. Um, yeah, so now it's understood that uh, Paik's former electorate officer had worked for Tangentier and others he refers to as family are in current senior management positions with the company. Lamley said she was made aware of the connections and had to, uh, by, by people in the community and had to refer it. She said Chancey Paik has had every opportunity to declare his interest, his conflicts of interest and recuse himself from all government business related to this Aboriginal corporation, but has failed to do so over several years. Many people in Central Australia have drawn to my attention these allegations of misconduct and potential corruption by Paik. So we went and we looked up today the statement of registrable interests. Now, this is the old document that years ago, well, not a long time ago, like six years ago, Kesey Pirik, who was speaking at the time, said, oh, the technology does not exist to put this online. And we used to have to like file an application and have to go down and hand over our phones and sit in a room with this register of members' interests. Yeah. And uh, yeah, it was and there were some fights, some there were some arguments, there were some disagreements. Let's say when they come in and said, "Let me see your phone." You had your phone, and dude, you're not seeing the phone. Um, <laughs> anyway, uh, yeah, we used to have to go down and do this. Now you can do it online. So I went to look for it at first. I couldn't find it. It looked like they had taken it down, and I thought, "Well, no, that's." Interesting. Anyway, I did uh, a little more searching. I did find it. Now, the last updated uh, statement of registerable interest was in March 22. Uh, and that is when he was remote housing minister. It does not include any reference to anyone connected to Tangentier or to the council of the corporation itself. So he hasn't disclosed that. Um, now, as far as what we know, the connections are and how that would influence decisions and stuff, but don't know. He's going to have to explain that at some point. Um, we sent him questions, of course. He did not respond. I'm shocked. <laughs> yeah, Tangentier Council Aboriginal Corporation. We also contacted them uh, and have not heard back from them. Uh, yes. None of your business? <laughs> Chancey Pake. Uh, Lamley says, Chancey Pake is the first law officer of the NT and must execute his role with the highest level of integrity and transparency. His blatant preferential treatment of Chanchinger Council without declaring a conflict of interest has been observed by many. She has way more faith than I do in the ICAC. She says, I will now leave it in the hands of the ICAC commissioner to serve some justice, particularly for the people of Central Australia who have been impacted by Pig's years of favoritism, lack of integrity, and misconduct. So, yeah, she's going all out here on, on Pig on this one. Is it unusual that members of the community would be making complaints to their local member about something like that? No, I would think that that would happen a lot. I think that's probably the right. safest thing to do if you know about him. I mean, when are you going to go to the ICAC? He's going to out you, like especially in a tight knit yeah, community yeah. like Alice Springs. Like, say people know something. And I'm not saying, look, I'm not saying that Chancey Pegg's guilty of anything. Yeah, yeah, point. yeah. Like, we'll figure that out. But if somebody knows of something and they go to the ICAC or they go to the government and they, bring it up as a whistleblower or something, you're going to get screwed. Like, everybody knows that in the Northern Territory. Like, how many whistleblowers yeah. I talk to who 
who say like, you know, we're just, we're getting screwed here for coming out with stuff. And that's got to change. Yeah. And that whole culture has to change. So it is safe because now Robin would have parliamentary privilege, which can be enacted in, in cases like that to protect people. Mm-hmm. Um, we have privilege as journalists, so people are always encouraged to contact us with any evidence they have to, and we'll keep them safe. Um, mm-hmm. Unlike the government or the ICAC, who somehow they all get outed through the government or ICAC, but we can keep whistleblowers safe as we have for many years. Um, so yeah, there are privileges in place for proper ways to do that, but I could see in Alice Springs that that would be a, a difficult situation to go anywhere else. So I think that's probably a good thing that they went to Robin, and Robin has now taken it forward to the ICAC. Does she have any obligation to, uh, should I say, uh, investigate that somewhat before referring it to the ICAC? You would think that she would have some some information that she would have attached. It's not just yeah. here's rumor and innuendo. It's usually yeah. you would have something. Um yeah, yeah, I mean, you'd, you'd hate, for example, for it to be one of the other service providers who missed out on a contract <laughs> and, you know, there's a well, tad yeah. sour grapes in it. Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, that's funny, you know, because I did a story back when, 2016, when the Labor government came in. Remember, the the, the town camp contract had been awarded. Under guise of transparency. <laughs> yeah. Um, and, and, and there was the town camp contract had been given to, under the CLP previously, to this other Zodiac company. It was called Zodiac. And then Best Price, who was the minister at the time, went to work for that company after she got unelected to parliament. Mm. And so some mm. issues were raised. So Labor goes and gives it back to Tangentier. Well, um, we now see that, well, and what Robin Lamley's saying is, but these guys are connected to Labor so so tightly. And the Chancing right. Bake... Um, was involved in making some decisions about this. He's got close connections with this particular corporation. So, um, yeah, it's going to be interesting here. Well, who knows if we'll hear anything, but because, um, like I said, you know, you get in these situations so where, you know, now that it's out there, it's almost like the ICAC, if he doesn't find anything, should probably come out and say. Yeah. <laughs> do a review yeah. and talk about he could do his motherhood statements all he wants on that like yeah he could do a review so there's nothing to see here and <laughs> well he better investigate it launch first. with the book on how to not be found corrupt <laughs> yeah but first look at this because yeah look if, if rob lamley's brought it to him then she knows of something so yeah um, there's, we'll there's some smoke there yeah. all right well, we'll no doubt we'll hear more about that in the future um, Chris, I've got to say, uh, you know, there's there's moments in time when you think it's really appropriate that certain things happen in this world. And while I think we thought it was appropriate that Michael Gunner stepped down uh, as the Chief Minister for various reasons, what we didn't realise at the time was just how appropriate it would be <laughs> to have Natasha Files as the Chief Minister because as an ex-PE teacher, nobody can do a backflip better than that. So uh, that really intros the next story because uh, despite a week ago saying, no, nah, this isn't going to happen, it's racist laws, we're not getting involved, the uh, NT government has backflipped and now reinstated an alcohol ban for communities and town camps uh, by the Chief Minister this week. Yeah, and... Um I mean, really, that's just what it comes down to, as I said to you yesterday. Like, that that's, uh, it is a complete backflip. I mean, like I said, it's, what, 200 and, 
fifty million dollars is like is the the price of her um, yeah. values, her tattered labor values, which don't exist anymore. Let's be honest; like nobody who, who who grew up labor in the Northern Territory could even say that this incarnation of the Labor Party is labor anymore. But of course, what I'm talking about is her saying, of course, it was race based policy. This uh, mm. bans on um, in the remote communities for alcohol ban. And that she would never reinstate it. And then here she is. But, you know, she's forced into that because of how she handled that from the beginning. And back in June, I mean, she was the chief minister this whole time. I mean, Gunner was, he had left just before that. Uh, yeah. And these, these expire. But she was also the alcohol policy minister at the time anyway. So this is her responsibility from the beginning. And she gets yeah. into a fight with the Morrison coalition government over this lapsing. And, you know, and I saw the letter that, that, that Cunningham had, which is clear, it came from files to uh, at Sky News um, to show that uh, Ken Wyatt, the previous uh, minister for Indigenous Australians, had said that he was happy for the, um, the federal bans to lift. But what he says in there, and I don't know if the files missed that, was what we think that the NT, and this is where he's wrong, but also files should be happy for, but he says we think the NT can look after everything and can and can move, uh, complete like a, a, a smooth transition into what's going to happen next and communicate with those parties and stakeholders to see where it goes and how it's handled. But she did not do that. And now she gets a quarter of a billion dollars for not fulfilling her yeah. obligations. It's just crazy. It just makes no sense to me. And we talked last week about the issues, about the government misappropriating this money that's meant for Indigenous disadvantage. And, you know, everybody's rightfully up in arms about that now, saying, you know, you know, just sent the price, Senator, saying, I don't have faith in this government to properly manage this money and to uh, to even implement these bans, which Files has been forced kicking and screaming now into doing and backflipping to to do this. Now, this could have been done last year, but, you know, like I said, like her, her values or something, the appearance of everything got in the way of what was common sense and good policy. And she was told, but she was told by all the peak bodies Indigenous big bodies and uh, and health and everything saying, do not let these labs keep them in. Do the opt out, not the opt in like she wanted. Do the opt out. She was told this, but in her mind, whoever she was talking to said, no, this is racist. This is a racist policy. And so, and that's how she played it and said, no, we're not going to do it. So by her inaction has led to these problems that we're seeing in Alice Springs. But of course, that's not all. This isn't all. We're all off on this now, but this isn't. The, the whole root cause problems in Alice Springs. And we know that. Um, and I don't think that this $250 million is going to help that unless the, the federal government is overseeing it. Somebody is, even them. I mean, they've been so complacent for, for this many decades up here in the territory that we need somebody else. There needs to be some sort of a, a board or committee uh, that has those stakeholders sitting at the table. Like I said, glass jar, you see where the money is. Here's where it's yeah. all going. It's the only way to do it because it goes into general coffers of the anti-government. We're never going to see that again, and nothing's going to be done. Yeah, remember the the sale of the port that disappeared in two years. That was yeah, gone. Yeah. Five hundred million was gone in two years, right? TIO. I think there's only the sale of that. There's only a little bit of that in a jobs fund. Ten million bucks left, but that was only because it couldn't be used in the infrastructure development fund. It's um, 
they just go through the money. They just somebody's getting rich off it all, but but yet the disadvantage continues to grow. The gap becomes a chasm, as I said last week. Yeah, it's just not. A it's good kind thing. of staggering. That the federal government would hand over that money with no no strings at this point that we know business of. Plan. Yeah, you know, no plan whatsoever. Well, yeah, and look, you know, you got Marion Scrimjaw, you've got uh, uh, Malandary McCarthy. Now, both of these Labour, one's an MP in, in Scrimjaw and Malandary being the senator, but both of them have been pretty critical of the government. And I think Malandary McCarthy said this week in the Senate, has the government been, the NT government been too slow to act on things? Yes, mm-hmm. I think we all know that. Yep. Um, and she's encouraging them to do that. Now, I want to see both of them kind of step up here and say, but we can't just give them the money. But it's kind of implied in some of the comments that we're hearing from them that they know that the anti-government can't spend this money. And now, I think I was reading something. There was a caucus meeting uh, today in Alice Springs for Labor. And there was some and those federal members were flying in, including Linda Burney. Um, and hopefully that that's where the discussions will take place on to how this money is going to be spent, because. Surely they know. I know the Malandiri and Marion know this government cannot be given a quarter of a billion dollars and just expect it to do what they haven't been able to do for the past, just for these clowns, what, eight years now. But yeah, um, yeah so I'm hoping that there's going to be some common sense and reason there and that we start to see something. But yeah, that's that's been the biggest story. Now, just on the spending, all we know right now, and I should point that out, is uh the Feds had said that this will be used for the following. They had six kind of key areas, I guess. Uh, improve community safety and cohesion through more youth engagement and diversion programs. Job creation, particularly in communities that surround Alice Springs, including urgent changes as part of replacing the failed community development program. Three, better services. By improving health services in surrounding communities, there will be less pressure on Alice Springs. Four, preventing and addressing the issues caused by fetal alcohol spectrum disorder, including better responding through the health and justice systems. Uh, five, investing in families, including uh, by better supporting elders and parents, boosting best domestic violence services. And six, on-country learning, improving school attendance and completion through caring for culture and country. Um, look, these, these sound like good ideas. I think yeah, that this is stuff that, that that's been thrown around a lot. And it, what the hell has the government been doing if they haven't been doing this? Correct. So to give them a bunch of money as they start doing it, like I said, I understand where they're coming from, that they have problems with service providers in these areas and getting NGOs, non-government service providers is a challenge. But they've got to figure out a way to do this here. And they've got enough public servants, goddammit, we know that. Start bringing them from Darwin down to Alice Springs until this gets fixed. Yeah. Look, I think it's accountability, Chris. At the end of the day, you're absolutely right. Those six statements are fantastic. All of them are things that that absolutely should be looked at. What shocks me is that have they not been looked at before? And there was one of them is to replace some failed other program. So what's to say that they're going to be able to do it with a better program this time? Uh, I know this is it. You got to really get in the details here. You can't just hand over the money and think that everything's going to be solved, especially with these clowns. Like maybe you could in Victoria. Maybe you couldn't in South Wales, but you can't yeah, here. Maybe. <laughs> well, it, it's, just given, it's just given the history of the NT, that's the yeah. issue, is that the spending or the money's been handed over previously with no obligation or no reporting. Seemingly. Very minimal reporting requirements. Are yeah. Very minimal, yeah. So, yeah. anyway. Now, um, and now here we are, but um, 
Yeah. Uh, yeah. Anyway, I think and I hope that, that there's going to be some common sense prevail here by the federal government to step in and say, OK, but here's how we're going to do it. Well, let's hope because the opposition have been out and about rallying support for an confidence motion in the files government this week, stating they're unfit to govern. <laughs> yes. Well, yeah. Um I guess, yeah, that is what they said. <laughs> the opposition leader, Leah Fanacchiaro, has made her return, her triumphant return. We don't know where she's been for weeks. She was on leave. Um, she's uh, now today, she's come out on Thursday morning here calling on labor backbenchers and independent MLAs to back her no confidence motion in the files government when parliament resumes next week. Now she's saying this is for uh, labor's ongoing failure to keep territorians safe. Uh, of course, referencing all of the, the crime issues in Alice Springs, uh, Tennant Creek, Catherine, Darwin, everywhere. Uh, this drastic measure, she says, and it is, is not taken lightly, but is reflective of the distraught voices of Territorians who are sick of suffering the consequences of a government failing to do its job. She said, when you can't sleep safely at night, your government has failed you. When you don't know if your child's class will have a teacher or your car will still be there after getting groceries, your government has failed you. That's not the, ter- the territory we want to live in. Here in the territory, it used to be about protecting our lifestyle, she said. Now it's about protecting our lives and livelihoods. Under labor territorians live their lives, not looking forward, but looking over their shoulder. So. Yeah, all, all your kids Polish can't go to months. school because your school's been vandalized overnight yeah. so badly that they can't get in. Yeah, and we saw that this week too. Um, yeah, yeah, and this is just goes to, to, to a lot of failures that we know now. Um, I think you were asking, is this though, this happens all the time, right, with the no confidence motion? Yeah, you know, I just assumed it did. Yeah, now they do the censure motion a lot so that they can debate stuff in parliament and really ridicule the government and kind of hammer them on things, but... <laughs> this, incidentally, is the first no-confidence motion in the government that we put to a vote uh, since 2019 and will be the first for for Leah Finocchiaro since she took over as opposition leader in 2020. So mm-hmm. I think they'd have to get numbers or something and do something next week, but it looks like that wouldn't happen. It will be debated and, and brought forward uh, not until the next sittings of March. And they can't then, win, um, though, right? Well, yeah, you look at the numbers. I mean, you'd have to get, you'd have to get, what, um, three backbenchers? I did the numbers, and I don't have it here. But remember that one of them, their short one, Arafura, yeah. and yeah. the by-election that we're not allowed to talk about, apparently, is going okay. on. But we're not allowed to right. talk about that um, until sometime Why? in March. Yeah, I don't know, honestly. She said, she was asked that today, or or Leah, somebody said, well, what about the uh, the by-election? Isn't that kind of uh, a no-confidence motion it could be on the government? Well, we're not talking about that. Because they've got to wait until the funeral happens for the previous member. And the, and the community's doing sorry business, and you, you can't be out there campaigning until after the funeral. And so there really is no time for the CLP whatsoever to actually campaign there, because... The funeral's like the, the third or something, and then they would have, right after that, they would have the remote polling out there that week. So it's... um, Is that a respect thing, Chris? Or is that a just... I hate it, to say this, but is that plain politics? Yeah, it, absolutely it is. Absolutely oh, it is. Okay. The way that they've set this up, we'll call it on the 18th, we'll do the funeral on the third, and that way... 
Um, yeah, it gives them an advantage. Absolutely. That's why they've done it. Um, yeah, but even the CLP won't come out and say that, but I'll say that. <laughs> yeah. 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 I guess it's one of those things, isn't it? So, I mean, you do have, have yeah. to be culturally respectful, but. Oh, and everybody is just, for the death here. And the yeah, terrible yeah. death it was, but um, yeah, but th- this is, labor knows how to capitalize on these things and this is how it's going to be done. So, mm. yeah, so they're thinking, the CLP is thinking, well, let's. Um, Let's throw this no confidence motion up. We're going to have to do this here. And yeah, you know, whether or not they get it, like I was saying with the numbers, so you could just take, you could get a couple of backbenchers. And I think you, you're looking at something here, but whether or not anybody, I yeah, yeah, I don't see anybody there except for Turner, probably. I don't think Turner would vote for them. Um, <laughs> but Joel, yeah, I don't know. He's, he's the only other backbencher without a portfolio, I think. Um, Mm. Um, so we'll see what happens there, but it also, yeah, comes on the heels here, of course, of the government's flawed handling of alcohol bans in remote communities, which files backflip. We talked about, uh, questions have also been raised about the files government, uh, how it intends to spend that 250 million. Finocchiaro called for an audit of that spending and other funding to ensure it makes it on the ground where it is needed. Uh, she said, it's really important that taxpayer dollars are spent in the most effective way possible. And what we have is a labor government that doesn't measure the performance of its progress or its outcome. She said, yep. uh, territorians have lost trust in the files labor government. This government has got itself into a situation where it doesn't know where the money goes, which is why the audit is so important. People don't have confidence in labor to manage it. Will $250 million disappear into government departments and be spent in a way that the government choose how they report it? Or will it go to a central governing board that has a number of key stakeholders on it where they are able to direct how those funds should be spent? And that's right. But I'll tell you, if CLP were in power, they would, they would not be doing that. They'd be doing the exact same thing as files. But yeah, she's yeah. absolutely right that that is what needs to happen, a central governing board, so that the, the, the stakeholders get to direct how that fund, how those funds are going to be allocated. Uh, yeah. And, of course, files said everything's awesome and she's doing a great job. And... Uh, <laughs> Parliament resumes on Tuesday. <laughs> and I believe she was waving a $250 million check at the same time. <laughs> yeah, look what I got. Um, yeah, check. That's it. I mean, you've heard her on doing the radio rounds. I can listen to half of it, and then that's about it for me. i got to leave it. But, um, yeah, look, I don't think we're getting a lot of answers. I think it was really this week, too, was Files's um, – and I think uh, Matt Garrick at ABC picked up on that in an analysis that he wrote was really there, uh, her Faust's inability to um, kind of take responsibility for this and where we are and where we've come and the, to, to, to just say, like, we messed this up, we're going to fix it. But she can't because yeah. I go back, go read the Kent Rose story from Christmas. All right. This is yeah. all what this labor government that isn't even labor. They shouldn't even be allowed to be called labor. Um, but this is what they do. They just they refuse to take responsibility for their actions or the harm or the problems that they've caused others. And they just lie yeah. to themselves and to everybody about it. She continues to do this. And uh, I, I just there's, there's no respect to be had for a government like that or for political leaders who can't take responsibility. We could give them a title. Um like when Prince was having his argument with his record company and he could only be referred to as the symbol for a few years. <laughs> yeah. so we could give him a, 
the party formerly known as Slaver. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And here's the symbol now. And it's yeah, just a big shock. middle finger to people. <laughs> that's their logo. <laughs> yeah, the biggest shock about all of that is that that's the first time there's been a no conference motion. I'm shocked by that. Yeah, well, since yeah, since 2019. I don't remember what the issue was in 2019, now. I'm because sure it was the same thing. It was probably dead. But yeah. Yeah, yeah, it would have been. It would have been. And at the end of the day, like, uh, you know, you always know there's two sides to an argument. You always know that Labor will have an argument, as you said, to say how they're doing an awesome job. And the opposition will say you're doing a terrible job. But it just feels like probably in the last 12 months especially, yeah. Things have escalated yeah. and, you know, as as you rightly said, you know, we spoke to Bob Beedman uh, a year or so ago now. We spoke to another um, expert economist in regards to the NT and the because the, I sort of said, well, how do you know? Like they're in debt, but how do you know things are not going well? And he said, well, first law and order goes and then you're, hospital system goes wonky and and it's like he predicted the future because all those things are just happening now oh wow yeah <clears throat> absolutely yeah and, and yeah we'll have more stuff on the police you know they're still fighting for their contract they're very unhappy uh, mm. yeah there's not enough of them to go around we know that that they're overstretched um yeah wow yeah that's right and alf alf we, we know the code jello's going on yeah yeah, yeah so yeah, that that's pretty accurate here, and unfortunately, I think we're starting to see it. Be like you said. Yeah. Yep. Well, speaking of health, let's move to the next story because um, I, I bet this would have come as a shock to a lot of people that the Alice Springs Hospital are short 130 nurses and midwives, and some casuals are being paid fifteen hundred dollars a day in communities, according to a union. Yeah. So uh, I think Woody. Woody just double checked this one, and he and he called uh, Kath Hatcher at the Australian Nursing and Midwifery Federation, um, NT, the branch secretary, and and he said, like, seriously, what? Like, that's wrong. There, there's no way. There's 130 full time equivalent positions. You're down by, and she said, yeah, that's no, <laughs> no, we are. Yeah. Right. Wow. Um, now. Some of that is attributed to uh, health staff leaving due to the ongoing violence and crime um, and fatigue um, with casual agency nurses. So then you have now casual agency nurses uh, being deployed to remote central Australian health clinics being paid $1,500 a day. So mm-hmm. she was on Mixcath Hatcher to, uh, to, to kind of draw everyone's attention to, to just how bad things are going down there. Um, now, this was 130 full-time equivalent positions short for nurses and midwives. Uh, it was based on data from last week and was another 28 nurses and midwives short in surrounding Central Australian community health clinics. Even the health clinics down there are not staffed. Yeah. Uh, she described the injuries of people going into the emergency departments as being like a war zone. We know, um, and then there are 130 nurses and midwives short. Uh, and, yeah, she's saying sometimes recruitment is successful depending on which ward you're, you're looking at, but they haven't worked with full capacity for quite some years now, and it's gotten worse in the last six months. Um, yeah. uh, starting during COVID, uh, medical staff had a huge workload daily, and it's been continuous. She said, yeah, the, the remote health clinic positions were being filled by casual staff from agencies now. We're getting a lot of money, 1500 bucks a day. 
Uh, but the agreement for that rate of pay ended at the end of the month. And she questioned if getting paid less would stop nurses wanting to go to those places. Um, yeah. So the, she well, says, they got the, $250 million now, Chris. So. <laughs> yeah. There you go. Use it for that too. Um, yeah, and she just said things were bad. Recruiting was bad. Executives trying to fill these positions with casuals and agencies, she said. But unfortunately, because of perhaps media and what's been going on over the last three to six months, nurses and midwives don't want to come to work in Alice Springs because they've heard about the violence. Well, I mean, it's happened. The media didn't create the violence, but uh, <laughs> we do have to report on it. And yeah, that, muckrakers weren't telling everyone. The midwives <laughs> wouldn't know, Chris. Yeah, <laughs> yeah everybody's got to know what's going on. Um, you don't want people getting there not knowing what they signed up for, but uh, that's true. That's you got to be true. safe there. And I know that we've had those stories about some some health staff in Alice Springs being attacked and um, yeah. and the precautions they have to take at the facilities where they're staying. So it's mm. not good, but this is, like you said, getting back to your guy, the economist. We know police yeah. now, this is hell falling apart all around us. Yeah, um, yeah. It, it's sort of frightening how he predicted it because it's all falling in line with what he'd said. Yeah. yeah. And like she says here now, the, the solutions, you know, it's it's just so difficult because people just don't want to, some are leaving and just not coming back. They're looking for yeah. other jobs said within other states and they're very tired and they're very fatigued. And like I said, they just don't have the energy to continue. Mm. Chris, you know, I love my names. Yeah. And, uh, you know, we've got some real personalities from the names from the police force, but I just love the fact that the head of midwifery's name is Hatcher. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, good Hatcher. He's um, Yeah, you got to see the the list. Get Woody next time you have money. He's got a list of some of the the most fantastic names in all of the Northern Territory. Brilliant. Keeping a list. <laughs> every every week, you don't fail to give me a a general. Uh, you know, a real genuine laugh by one of the names. They just line up beautifully. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah. um, let's move to our next story and uh, talk about one of the NT's most infamous mayors. And we're not talking about Darwin this time. The Barclay mayor has been arrested again <laughs> for allegedly driving with marijuana in his system, according to sources, Chris. Uh, that's right. Uh, his, his, his long title is Barclay Regional Council Mayor Jeffrey McLaughlin, but I think you can just call him the dude for now, <laughs> or dude Reno if you're not into the brevity thing. Yeah. Um, and that's what I was thinking, looking at this guy, like, what is this? Anyway, he's been charged now, yeah, for the second time in less than five months for allegedly driving with marijuana in his system again. Sources told The Independent late on Friday night, uh, the latest charges announced. So the police just put out a thing on Friday afternoon saying, uh, whatever, 42-year-old man's been arrested for drug driving in Tennant Creek. Uh, but we know now that it was him. We had that confirmed later that day. Uh, comes to uh, his second charge in as many months, or in five do, months. Do you just call up and confirm that it's him every time it's a 42? <laughs> well, it's really funny because Woody wasn't in the office, but I looked at that on my way out the office, and I thought, because they put out a 530 or something, and I thought, I wonder if that's the mayor again because it's a 42-year-old Barkley. And I was like, he couldn't be that bad. So I got in the car, and I went home, and I get home, and I'm seeing messages from Woody texting people saying, hey, is this him? Can you confirm this? 
He said, I heard it's him. So and then we had to get it confirmed. We have to go through a whole bunch of people. We got it confirmed. Um, so, yeah. So now, like, the, and, you know, it comes while well, he and the counselor and, you know, mirrored in a lot of issues there. Uh, yeah. The chief executive, uh, remember, like three of them left, like half the council quit because of him and the drug stuff. Yeah, yeah. And now yeah. here we here he goes again. Uh, and the council's chief executive and him are currently dealing with the followed of a review into people systems and business processes after reports of not only were counselors leaving, but there was, quote, a flood of resignations amid allegations of bullying and mismanagement of council. So yeah, staff yeah. were leaving. Uh, so yeah, they put out that, uh, release that it was a man. We're not going to say who it was, but yeah, he was also pulled over on September 19th when he was allegedly given a, a positive, he gave a positive roadside test result for marijuana as he did mm. this time. Now at back then in the media release in September, was it when they, first got him they searched the tenant creek residence they said and seized a number of cannabis plants and material and then mr mclaughlin or the dude had been charged with driving under the influence of drugs supplying less than a commercial quantity possessing less than a trafficable quantity of a schedule two drug and cultivating less than a trafficable quantity of a prohibited plant I think so, they used to call that personal use back in the day. <laughs> yeah, but they didn't. They didn't. Uh, well, Schedule Two drug. Yeah, I don't know. Um, anyway, we'll see more on that. I'm sure that's going to come up mm. to court soon. Now, last time he was driving a council car. I think we'll have a story up soon. He was driving. Yeah, I was a wondering car. about that. He yeah, was yeah. doing it again. He did the first oh, no. time. He was doing it again. I can say that oh, now. Geez. We'll have a story up on that. Um, and then, so I think Woody at the time, back in September, the first time, which should just start saying, uh, went to the council chief executive, that's Emma Bradbury, and she confirmed that the mayor was driving a council car when stopped during work hours for the first arrest, but both herself and the mayor maintained it was a personal matter. The charges are a private matter, she said, and unrelated to his role as mayor. So it's inappropriate <laughs> for council or counselors to comment on the matter. And she was quoted in the Tenant uh, Creek and District Times as saying, then, um, yeah, McLaughlin issued a statement back in September saying he was taking personal leave to address personal matters. For me to continue working as a public face of counsel through this time will detract from our work, he said. So he goes on a leave only for a while. Then he comes back and he gets busted again. Uh, so now this just, time. And just to be clear, it is a little bit related to council stuff if it's during work hours, surely. And you're driving the council car around. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, yeah, there, I don't think there's anything that they can get him sagged for driving the council car. I think he's like, there's, there's really nothing they can yeah. do. Anyway, there's a lot going on with these this legal review that they're doing now. And, you know, incidentally, I think we were talking about it not too long, a couple weeks ago, maybe. Uh, the NT government has brought in, and we know that there's this function going on there at the Barclay Regional Council. So the NT government yeah. brought in the guy. Mark Blackburn. Now, he was the guy in 2017 that they brought in when they sacked Palmerston Council to manage all of the affairs of oh, Palmerston, yeah. if you remember that. Um, so he's now been hanging around these meetings, okay. um, giving advice. Yeah, independent governance advice. So, yeah, I think, look, I think we're getting to the point here where um, the government's mm. probably going to dismiss this council and the CEO. 
but Woody will have more Three on that out. soon. What's that? Three strikes and you're out. <laughs> yeah. Well, like they've got so many problems, like just some of that stuff mm -hmm. with the with the staff and everything. So he came out, uh, El Dudorino. He says now he puts out a statement or something on Monday, saying that uh, yeah, that he he was his his positive roadside test for marijuana was a result of prescription medication. Okay. Uh, so he's been doing it's that. that. Um, how to get a hold of prescription marijuana? Is it? <laughs> prescription medication. Uh, yeah. So, like you know, I don't know if he wants to turn Tennant Creek into some sort of Australia's Amsterdam <laughs> or something. I don't know. Community. Yeah, like you got a lot of area there. You can grow a lot, but like you got to get the laws changed first. So anyone who's like, "Well, he's just mm -hmm. smoking pot," it's like, "Well, that is the law." And until you get the law changed, also don't be yeah. driving. You can go and smoke pot all you want. Well, you can't hear him. Well, used to. I was back in Canada, and you can buy it at the corner store there, basically. Um, so you can what buy. What are you doing here, man? You can buy marijuana. Yeah, it doesn't. I'm not into that anymore. Um, but like I, I like I, I think people, you know, you smoke it, it's fine, and you're relaxed, and you're at home, whatever. But you're driving around in a council car, and you're the mayor. Yeah. Like, uh, come During on. During work hours. Yeah, that's not good. Yeah. And look for those that are unfamiliar with this drug scene. Um, I'll just the decipher drug some, scene or? or just the <laughs> drug scene in general. I'll just decipher for you some of what Chris said. A positive roadside test is a negative thing. A negative roadside test is a positive thing. That's right. That's right. So don't get your positives and your negatives mixed up. <laughs> well, so yeah, I mean, it's, it makes for an interesting news story that people read when there's a positive roadside it test. Does. Um, it does. Yeah, positive story about a council. <laughs> yeah, there's a few and far between, and he's just yeah. Anyway, we'll we'll, we'll see, but um, all of this stuff's going to go to court, and like I said, the council probably be turf before he even makes it to court, but we'll see. Mm. Meanwhile, the uh, is the car locked up, or the car's um, <laughs> he's still, probably still, still driving. <laughs> How does he say, like last time, oh, I got to go away for a little while, then he comes back, he gets done again. This time, well, I might as well just stay and keep doing it now. <laughs> like, it's really just getting ridiculous. Anyway, oh, God. Yes, it is. Yeah. Well, no doubt you'll report back when there's more to talk about in that, what can I think of described as bizarre situation. Yeah. Now, Chris. I know this is something that you look forward to. I know everybody looks forward to it every week. Mm -hmm. It's time now for the job files. <laughs> the job of the week. I forgot you called it that, and I was waiting to hear the theme song. I know you don't have one, but I feel like we have I one. I know. Yeah. I, go, dum -dum. I actually think I, I better uh, organize that. And at some point in the not-too-distant future, there will be a job files theme intro. But... Um, so many jobs came across my desk this week. I just didn't know where to go. So what I thought was I'm going to give you a snapshot of a couple of things and then I'm going to reveal something, okay? <laughs> so so the Director of Corporate Communications job for the Department of Territory, Families, Housing and Communities is up for grabs Terrible if job. you're into marketing and communications. Terrible. Terrible. Well, job. You'd think it'd be a tough job, wouldn't you? Yeah. Have to be. Yeah. 
That job's paying $217,533 precisely. Oh, wow, yeah, because they know for up to four years. they can't get anyone to do that. That's just a poison chalice set to try. And families, woo, woo. Yep. Yeah, I'll, edit, I'll try to edit that bit out. If you're thinking about applying for that job. <laughs> Don't bother. <laughs> Brian E. Bree, a call on 899 Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, God, why aren't they paying her? Why doesn't she do it? She should do it. Dennis Bree's daughter, oh. she should do it. She was she was Lawler's, uh, was she Lawler's chief of staff or is Lawler's chief of staff? She should do it. Well, I, well, I don't know, but she, she's yeah. the one you talk to, so give her a call if you're interested. And maybe you can call her and ask her what Chris said. Now, <laughs> the second job being presented to us on this episode is – a press secretary job to various ministers, which uh-huh. I found kind of strange. Yeah, that um, is odd. If you're looking for someone with journalism and writing background. Uh, now, what I found most interesting about this job, given that the, uh, was it, director of corporate communications was paying $217,000, <laughs> this job doesn't even have any money attached to it. So the meal ticket no. is yours to write. Simply apply and tell them what you want. But yeah, you're not going to get that much, so I'll tell you that. That you're not going to get two seventeen. You're going to get one seventeen, probably. Well, Chris, we wondered whether two hundred and fifty million dollars was going to be spent. <laughs> I know where some of it's going because, mm. lo and behold, what pops up this week on seek.com.au is the NT Government Department of Industry, Tourism and Trade. Are looking for a senior director of liquor, uh, and that is paying two hundred and seventeen thousand five hundred and thirty-three buckaroos, my yeah, friend. Yeah, pretty good. That I'd take that over the family's one for sure. Well, yeah, the well, liquor one. Um, yep. But you, you know, just getting back to that other one though. First, sorry, the um, yeah one about the roving. What was it? Roving uh, advisor, secretary for various ministers. Yeah, that's interesting because I've heard that a lot of them have left. That a lot of the press secretaries, the press secretaries, yeah, well, minister, and I was getting a lot of bounce back. Like I still send the questions, and I have a list, so I know who the ministers yep. people are. So I email them along with the minister. But I'm getting I'm getting a lot of bounce backs. I'm like, wow. Everybody's yeah, coming. And I was talking to somebody who said, yeah, a lot of people on the fifth floor have left. Whether they've done this, you know, of their own volition or what's happened, but something's going on there. And there's some since senior the, people have left too. Since the cultural review, it's not as fun. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I can imagine it's not very fun <laughs> there at all because ultimately the question comes down to this, Pete. And, you know, I've been asking people this who know about the fifth floor and it's, you know, inner functions and, and everything there. Like who's calling the shots right now? Yeah. Like who, like we know Alfie and Artie was there with Gunner and then he had, um, what's her name? Emily Beresford Kane came from a business background, didn't really get politics. And we could I'm see a lot of those failures. She, yeah. she, she'd be more suited to a 007 sort of attache character, <laughs> I reckon. Yeah. Um, <laughs> But yeah, I've been asking like people who know this, like, but who's actually there? Who is Files listening to? Who are her advisors? Now we know it's um, a, a woman named uh, Gabrielle Mappis, I think is the chief of staff. But she was just in there with with Files when she was health and when uh, minister. And when she became chief minister, she went over, and then she picked up uh, Ken Rose, best mate there, uh, a guy named Chris Grace, who's the deputy chief of staff. Um, this is this is very troubling if these people are the ones, you know, where she's 
on this national stage and if her advisors are these junior, junior, junior people who, who mm. do not grasp um, uh, the gravity of, of where we're at and the failings that we're going through, this is really troubling. And, and yeah, but that's it. And when I talk to everybody, it's like, I don't know, like nobody. They have nobody up there who's actually advising the chief minister who knows anything. So yeah, go ahead and, and hire and pay for more of these kind of people, but they're not even going to help in the, in the long run here for files. Cause she's out of her element here and, uh, and her staff are completely not up to the test. I wonder whether it was a roving role because, um, you know, you could sort of zip into one minister for a few days, not go like them, zip into someone else. I'm oh, pretty good at my staff for a week. I don't, I, know, don't, like, don't I, like them anymore. Yeah. I think it's gotta be something like that, but you would, you know, so that they don't get bored or they'll meet like, uh, you know, maybe they'll get Kirby or something. And they'll be like, Ooh, God, I don't want to be there. And then you got Lawler. I don't know, but they can mix around and see who they get along with first, because like I'm saying, I think there's going to be more. It's going to say like times three for that role. I think yeah, very yeah. soon or times four, because they've lost some people. And uh, you know, when that's happening, it's a bad sign. It's a bad sign and, and, and bad mm -hmm. PR for, for the government that, these senior advisors are leaving and taking off in the middle of a crisis. Well, it doesn't, it doesn't bode well for stability, does it, when you're seeing these very senior roles being reappointed? Yep, well, uh, welcome to the NT, and they'll just every time they can't fill it, they'll just bump it up by 25000 salary and hopefully get somebody. And some, some sucker's going to take that family's role, and they're going to be terrible at it, and it's going to be advertised six months from now. Well, we've got all this money to spend and no yep. obligation as to where we spend it, Chris. So <laughs> That's right. Let's watch this space. All right, Chris, as always, been a pleasure. Catch you next week. Great. Thanks, Pete. We'll see you next week. That was Chris Walsh from the NT Independent Online Newspaper. Weekends of Walshy back again next week on the Territory Story Podcast Weekend Edition. We'll catch you then. You've been listening to the Territory Story Podcast with Peter Gowers. For more episodes, search Territory Story Podcast on all leading podcasting platforms or go to TerritoryStory.com. The Territory Story Podcast, thanks to Opie Dennis Digital Marketing, your local digital marketing agency.